Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, has there been a loss of decorum at the state capitol? And how a rice-sized beetle is killing pine trees throughout the valley. But first, a plan by the Scottsdale-based maker of taser stun guns to build a new campus in North Scottsdale has run into problems, both with the city and nearby residents. Axon is looking to build a new headquarters, but it also wants around 2,000 apartments on the site. Apartments are not currently allowed on that land. Members of the Scottsdale Planning Commission have not been enthusiastic about the proposal, and one of them is now alleging Axon tried to intimidate him into supporting it. Axon denies the allegation. Sam Kamak of the Arizona Republic has been following the story and joins me now to talk more about it. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. So let's start with what exactly Axon wants to do. They want to build a new headquarters, but they also want some apartments nearby. Right. So they bought a big chunk of land in North Scottsdale back in 2020, 74 acres. Um, And so what they had planned or what they had planned originally was a 400,000 square foot um, office building that would be their new headquarters. That plan got approval back in 2020. Um, but then they came back to the city, to the planning commission, um, and kind of the bodies that it has to, a project has to work through before it gets to the city council, and proposed um, that on the, the remaining chunk of that property, they can build um, about, uh, originally the, the proposal was for about 2,500 apartments, but it's um, they've kind of slimmed that down now. It's about 2,000 apartments, like you said, um, a hotel and uh, some retail space. And what what does the city, what do nearby residents, like, why do they object to this? Well, so like you said at the beginning, um, the residential is not currently allowed on that land. Um, and there are nearby residential neighborhoods, like single-family suburban neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, who are worried about traffic just with all the, the people who would be moving in there and living on that uh, in that area um, with the apartments. There's also concerns about the high-density um uh, buildings, basically taller buildings that might, you know, not make it look as good in that area. Um, but the the biggest concern that I've heard from both residents around there and the uh, the planning commissioners, the city officials who are making decisions on this, is that they feel Axon came in and kind of knew that the land was not uh, appropriate for residential, bought it anyways, and then now they're kind of pressuring the city to say, okay, well, we want residential. You have to make this exception or else we're going to bring our business somewhere else. Has Axon suggested that they might move their headquarters out of Scottsdale? Uh, Well, they've mentioned, um, you know, focusing uh, the growth of their company in other cities. I remember their development lawyer at one of the the meetings mentioned Seattle and Atlanta. Um, I don't know if they explicitly said that, but um, it's, it's sort of been implied. Okay. So there's also been an allegation, as you reported recently, from a member of the Scottsdale Planning Commission. These are volunteers, we should mention, who is accusing Axon of of trying to intimidate him into uh, into changing his mind and supporting this project. What what did he have to say? Yeah, so he sent an email, and this is the only thing that we have on record kind of documenting what exactly it is that he says went on. But um, 
he sent an email to the city attorney saying that after the January 24th planning commission meeting, um, one of the Axon executives uh, went to the planning commissioner's employer, which is uh, Merrill Lynch, um, and basically put some pressure on Merrill Lynch uh, or on the on his boss and said, you know, this guy's not acting appropriately. And, and the the implication there, um, it's not, again, not said straight out, but the implication is the guy tried to sort of put pressure on the planning commissioner via his employer to either change his vote or at least not be as outspoken an opponent. Uh, an opponent. And as I mentioned, Axon has denied that, that this happened. What have they said about it? Yeah, Axon has denied it. Um, they sent me a statement, a written statement that just said um, the company has never tried to intimidate any member of the planning commission or any member of the city. Um, into doing one thing or the other, uh, but they did not say whether that call, whether there was a call made to um, the planning commissioner's employer. Um, so that we still don't totally know. Um, and they also wouldn't put somebody up for a, a phone interview to discuss it. So huh. you know, basically all, all we know right now about what they're saying is that they did not try to intimidate anybody. And is the city looking into this? Like, has the city attorney's office gotten involved? Yeah, well, one of the city council members, um, Betty Janik, she told me that um, the uh, the city attorney is investigating or the legal department is investigating what went on there. I don't still don't have any uh, real details about what that's going to look like um, or what exactly, I mean, if that's even definitely happening. Um, I reached out to the city attorney, haven't heard back. Um, but uh, like I said, so it's, it's really only the one council member who said that, that that is going on, but everyone else has been relatively quiet about it. Sure. So like, what are the next steps? Is this project still, in theory, alive? Is it still possible, or is it pretty much done at this point? Yeah, so um, at the last meeting, they voted to, the Planning Commission voted to, it's called continue um, the project, and that basically means they delay voting on it, they push it back. Um, and most times when, when that happens, there's a specific future date where they say, okay, this project's going to come back at this date. Um, but the most recent um, commission meeting, uh, they basically said, it, we're going to just continue this indefinitely. So so we don't know. It's kind of in limbo. Um, it's, it's likely going to come back in front of them at some point. Um, but we, again, we just don't have a date. It could be months. It could be a year. It could be a few weeks. We don't know. Sure. Interesting. All right. That is Sam Kamak of the Arizona Republic. Sam, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. The Arizona legislature has long been a place where fire, fierce policy debates could be had, as well as the occasional personal insult. But some observers say decorum at the Capitol has recently been getting worse. While this is not the topic of the committee to answer the vice chair's question and hopefully put this line of questioning to rest, the ACLU finds 132906 uh, 2 let's, let's, to be improper. Let's have some respect to the senators. It's not lame question. It's questioning that our... our Voters want to hear. So it's not lame. Uh, okay. Well, Mr. Retract, Chairman, yeah, agree to disagree. Retract that, that'd be good. And I'm not going well, to. Well, um, Mr. Chairman, step, Mr. Vice Chair. Down. She's done. You're done. Thank you. She oh, was it L A N? Okay. Yeah. Well, you could have clarified that. I thought you said lame questioning. And it wasn't lame questioning? No, sir. Okay. Like Thank you for clarifying. The answers were somewhat lame. Okay.
appreciate your passion, but you don't need to yell at us. Just well, I feel the things. passion. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, uh, no. Make this even more hostile environment. We're not, we're not going to have clapping, please, uh, on we're either cheering. side of any bill. Please. We're cheering. Thank you. And, and God bless Katie Hobbs. Wow. I'm not here to that lobby. I'm, I'm here to, you to are, fight you are, for you are, my... You are lobbying right now. If you're, if you're advocating, I'm here to fight if you're advocating, for... Stop, stop, stop talking. This bill does not serve the people of Arizona. Thank you, ma'am. Any questions? Those are my opinions. I don't consider this to be a debate. Thank you very much. You're exactly right, ma'am. I wasn't opening it up to debate. I was opening it up for questions. Are there any yeah. questions? Questions. I you don't not. get to you don't get to decide when you're done, ma'am. Yes, I do. All right. Well, get out of my room. Those are just a few examples of the type of behavior displayed by lawmakers and members of the public generally in committee hearings when anyone can sign up and testify in favor of or against a bill. To get a sense of the state of decorum at the Capitol, I'm joined by a longtime observer of the state legislature, Kevin Domena of Domena Public Affairs. And Kevin, you've been involved in this process for a while now. How would you describe the way people behave and treat each other now relative to maybe what you've seen in the past? I would say that like any workplace, um, starting at roughly the time we turned the Internet on, fundamental change. And so much of lawmaking is a personal business. It just simply requires, it excels when there's personal engagement. But it's a sea change and it was a wonderful time. It's still wonderful at times, but not so much now. So do you find that people are just like not as polite to each other? Are they meaner to each other? Like just less good decorum generally? It's an interesting thing about becoming an elected official at any station. Uh, I've noticed that it, often people expect that they're going to change, that they're somehow going to transform. Now that the word honorable is affixed in front of their name, yeah. and it's not that. It simply amplifies the person you are. Um, and if you were rude before you came to the Capitol, that's coming with you. If you were kind and a sort of outreach kind of person, that's going to come with you as well and probably serve you better. What governs the day the business at the legislature is Mason's Manual of Legislative Procedures. And there's a provision in there that explains at the outset in the chapter on decorum that all members are created equal. Right. The president of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, and the chairman of Pages and Interns, uh, the newest member. And, and that's fundamental because the decorum that that inspires should be self-evident. So let's talk about a few different aspects of this. You have members not treating members all that nicely, and you have members not treating members of the public all that nicely. Let's start with, with sort of members, you know, saying rude things or being mean to other members. Like, what's what's behind that? So you walk on the floor of the Senate. When I went to high school, I think there were about 30 kids in the room. The floor of the Senate, there's 30 members. The interpersonal dynamics of addressing confrontational issues, that you just can't avoid the topics on a regular basis, you'd think would inspire the type of decorum, that comity, the conversational, the transactional aspect of this. Uh, But lately, it hasn't. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of different observations as to why, but the member-to-member relations are 
more polarized than they've ever been. At member to member, the turnover does not lead to the depth of relations that Alfredo Gutierrez had with Burton Barr and with Bruce Babbitt, governor at the time. It simply doesn't build 20-year careers and the knowledge and the relationships that come with that. So we've also seen, and we've seen this over the years, but it seems as though recently there's been more of it, especially during committee meetings or committee hearings, because that's when members of the public can come in and testify on bills, that there have been elected lawmakers who aren't that, just frankly aren't that nice to people who are coming to testify like members of the public their constituents they say things that are kind of snarky or mean they're a little dismissive are we really seeing more of this kind of behavior or is it just maybe always been there and it's just more amplified now oh it's it's definitely on the uptick um, every time a new uh, app is developed uh, it seems to uh, ratchet up uh, TikTok uh, Twitter uh, there's an audience that Many are playing to in the policymaking world more attention to drafting legislation, studying and meeting on legislation and less with the public profile. The retail side of it would be best. The ability to become notorious in a moment didn't always exist on the floor of the legislature. Yeah. We've impeached governors. We've uh, indicted seven members during ASCAM. But none of it matches the intensity of a single issue in a session these days. Do you see a difference between lawmakers maybe not having decorum toward each other versus people who've maybe driven a few hours for two minutes to testify in front of them in a committee? So it's important to acknowledge it's a two-way street. Lawmakers to the public, it's terrifying standing at that podium. It's terrifying if you've spent a week writing your remarks on your phone which many do these days, and then your phone goes dead. We're really there to listen to them. Most of these committees have a two-minute rule, and it's terrifying. And if you drove down from Snowflake, the ratio just seems out of whack. So realistically, legislature isn't as good at listening as it used to be. So what's the way out of this? Like, it seems naive just to tell people, hey, be nice to each other, treat everybody with respect. But is there a way to bring back the decorum that we've had in the past? I am certain that it's going uh, to return. Uh, I think it's the natural angle of repose. The body, the House and the Senate, are the most productive when people are working together. Turning your back on the governor generates clicks, but it isn't a step down the policy path to generate law. And it's a designed system simply for the purpose of human interaction to create a superior product. The seriousness of this should not go unnoted. Everything from methods of execution to speed limits to childcare assistance, it's serious business down there. So what out of necessity will happen is that people are learning from these experiences. But the decorum, we can't let TikTok take over. And and how we get there is just by being, being true. A reverence for the process, because when it's allowed to work and when you show respect for it, it produces better law. I was going to ask you about that because I'm obviously like, you know, people can get rankled and feathers ruffled and, you know, members of the public can walk away thinking, boy, that guy's a real jerk if, you know, if somebody says something to them at a committee hearing or doesn't listen to them. But in terms of the actual lawmaking, 
You mentioned how relationships matter. What kind of impact does this seeming lack of decorum have on the kinds of, of bills that are worked on and ultimately go through the process? So if you were to order a fine watch, <laughs> a car, and they said, we'll have it here Saturday, you know, you'd be pleased, but it may not be the custom piece and the detail and the workmanship you're looking for. Lawmaking is no different. This shouldn't be done quickly. It should be done right. And the slow pace is based upon a relationship. You're spending a lot of time in solitary confinement in the conference room in the basement, and you're not done until you come out with that product. I miss that. Sure. All right. That is Kevin DeMatta with DeMatta Public Affairs. Kevin, good as always to see you. Thanks for coming in. It's always a pleasure to be on KJAZZ. Good morning. It is the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. The Arizona House has given preliminary approval to a bill that would exempt minor league baseball players from the state's minimum wage law. Similar laws have already been approved in California and Florida. The exemption would apply to minor leaguers while they're playing in Arizona, thanks spring training, instruction league, or a number of other instances. Both Major League Baseball and the players support the measure, although some legislative Democrats have come out in opposition. Earlier, I talked about this issue with Chris Dubert, senior counsel with the labor employment firm of Consingy, Brooks, Smith & Profit, where he specializes in sports, litigation, labor, and employment. And we started with the collective bargaining agreement, and it being a big reason why both the players and MLB are pushing for this exemption. Yes, and, and so going backward, Major League Baseball clubs and their players um, have been in a collective bargaining relationship for uh, almost 60 years. Uh, and they've they've negotiated multiple collective bargaining agreements over over that time pursuant to federal labor law. But only um, in the last two years have minor league baseball players also unionized and are also now represented by the Major League Baseball Players Association. And they executed their first ever collective bargaining agreement with um, Major League Baseball last year. Um, and that's because Major League Baseball, uh, through a variety of other agreements, controls substantially controls minor league baseball. So why would the players not want to be subject to minimum wage laws? Yeah. And so going backward, um, uh, there's there's there was important litigation in 2015. Um, a minor league baseball player commenced class action lawsuit uh, against Major League Baseball, and minor league baseball clubs, alleging that they had been deprived of uh, essentially a minimum wage and an overtime to which they thought they were entitled under federal law and and state law, the federal law being the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a, a New Deal era law meant to protect workers. And that case ultimately settled really only uh, last year for about $185 million in damages. But in that process, Major League Baseball um, successfully lobbied Congress to exempt made, uh, minor league baseball players from the Fair Labor Standards Act. So that helped them on the federal level, but minor league baseball players were still um, you know, subject or controlled uh, or had rights under state um, minimum wage and overtime laws. And so when they reached, when they did the new collective bargaining agreement or their first ever collective bargaining agreement, they jointly agreed to lobby um, the states to exempt minor league baseball players from their, their minimum wage and hour laws. Well, so if the players are subject to the minimum wage laws in a given state, for example, in Arizona, is that a less good deal for the players? Like, do they earn less money that way? Um, that is sort of remains to be seen. I, I think uh, the math 
may, you know, I think Arizona has a has a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, so um, which is you know towards the high end, uh, where some some states are certainly lower. But you have to look at it in the big picture, which is now this collective bargaining agreement is it although the full agreement hasn't been released. Collective bargaining agreements in sports are usually several hundred pages long, and they govern a wide range of terms and conditions of uh, an athlete's employment. And there are a variety of trade-offs in there between the players and the league and the clubs. And the general consensus is that, you know, the players and league uh, need to work together to grow the pie of revenue because they are splitting that pie. And um, now that they have a, a, a unionized structure and an agreement that sets forth minimum salaries, and a variety of other benefits such as housing and and uh, daily stipends and and um, health insurance, life insurance, those kinds of things. Uh, the players themselves can make a determination as to what they want to bargain for and and what maybe non cash items are are more important to them. So, is it fair to say then that the union is supporting this exemption because it's part of the collective bargaining agreement? Basically, they and and MLB and the owners basically said, "Look, we'll we'll both lobby for this to happen, even though for some of the players it might mean less pay." So, um, it's again important important context here, which is you know New Deal legislation, minimum wage and hour laws, minimum wage and hour laws are meant to protect. The most vulnerable workers. Um, but that is not the case with minor league baseball players. They are represented by the Major League Baseball Players Association, which is one of the most powerful unions in the country, not just in sports, in the country. They've existed for 60 plus years. They've litigated against Major League Baseball and its very wealthy ownership groups for, for that entire time. Uh, they've they've had numerous lawsuits, arbitrations. They've won hundreds of millions of dollars in damages from Major League Baseball owners in the past. They've had exemplary leadership and outside counsel, and they too, and they still do to this day. They are more than capable of defending themselves, and the union, uh, I think, fairly so, believes that they can do a better job of representing these players and determining what is in their interests than, say, a state legislature or the state judiciary system. So some critics of this are saying that it could potentially set a dangerous precedent to exempt a, a particular group from the minimum wage law. What do you think of that argument? Like, do, do you think they have a point there? Um, respectfully, no. I, don't, I think they're ill-informed. California already has legislation that permits exemptions from certain wage and hour laws for unionized employees. Even even to the extent it is a special case, it's a very different type of worker and a different type of union. Um, these major, these minor league players right now, for sure, many of them are earning fairly low wages and salaries. You know, somewhere between twenty or or fifty thousand dollars or something. But they also have the potential uh, of earning millions of dollars, and and many of them may have received uh, very large signing bonuses already the average unionized worker does not have that kind of upside and they do not have the kind of union representation that these players do. I mean, the majority of minor league players, though, never make it to the majors. So I, I wonder if, you know, for those people who sort of toil away for years in the minors and, and never make it to the big leagues, could something like this potentially hurt them, even though they have the major league players union 
you know, having their back. Well, so they were already um, the, the the new CBA substantially increased um, salaries. I mean, uh, more than more than doubled them um, in many respects. Uh, the league and the teams were not without defenses in terms of their, their compliance with these laws. And, and to step back, one of the one of the major problems of the application of these laws to professional sports is record keeping requirements. Mm. Your average hourly worker enters every day, punches a clock, punches out at the end of the day. How does a baseball player do that when they're on the road for 10 or 14 days or something like that? And what what time counts towards um, you know, work being being employed versus time that they're just in a hotel or maybe doing things on their own. Um, so theoretically, would some minor league baseball players be able to earn more uh, under a strict application of state minimum wage and hour laws? Yes, it's certainly possible. But you have to look at the entire package of benefits in the CBA as a, ter- as a terms of how it, it benefits them. You know, the CBA includes all types of provisions in terms of improved medical care and facilities and education and language classes and, and lots of different things that will both substantially increase their chances of, of making um, Major League Baseball and also, I think, just improve them um, as professionals and individuals. Chris Dubert is senior counsel with a labor employment law firm of Constant G. Brooks, Smith & Profit, where he specializes in sports, litigation, labor, and employment. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. If you've noticed a lot of the big, beautiful old pine trees around the valley turning brown and dying off, our next guest has another reason why. As we've reported on the show before, it's because of age and drought often and our changing climate here in the valley. But it's also because of a tiny brown beetle. Mitchell Lannon is forest health specialist for the Arizona Department of Forestry and Fire Management. And he told me this invasive insect is the only one in our state right now, but they're worried about its spread. The main invasive insect tree pest is the Mediterranean pine engraver, Hmm. uh, otherwise known as MPE. Mediterranean Uh, pine engraver. Tell us about this little bug. What does it look like? Is it a beetle? Definitely. Yeah, it is a beetle. And you're correct. It is very little. (laughs) Um, It is uh, about three millimeters in length. So about the size of a grain of rice. Wow. Um, This is a bark beetle. So it attacks trees, specifically our ornamental Mediterranean pines that we have planted here in the valley and also around Tucson. Hmm. So Um, is this like why we are seeing some of those really big pine trees that have been around the valley for a long time dying off? That's not just drought. It's also these guys? Definitely. Wow. It's, it's, it's a lot of different factors. And these these uh, MPE are, are one of those factors that are killing these trees. Hmm. So are you concerned about this beetle spreading further and the, the kind of further damage it might do here? Well, we are extremely concerned about that. Yes. Uh, some trapping that was done in 2023, so last year, found MPE to have spread to multiple new areas around the state. Uh, we found it in Superior. We found it in Pine Top Lakeside, uh, Kingman, uh, kind of all throughout the state um, in places where there aren't Mediterranean pines. So the new concern is that this this pest is spreading to to native tree species. Hmm. Have you found any evidence of that happening yet? That it's harming other trees? 
not not yet. There have been some some lab studies done that show that uh, these these pests are able to attack some of our native tree species, our, our native evergreens. Mm-hmm. But we, the DFFM, are working on a couple of projects to to confirm that and confirm if they actually are at this point attacking those native trees. So how does a little invasive species like this, this, you know, rice-sized beetle, get here? Like, how do you find it? How does it come to Arizona when it's not from this place? Definitely. These forest pests tend to spread through firewood and other woody material that's being uh, transported from state to state. So oftentimes it's it's just people bringing firewood with them when they enter the state. And huh. in that firewood are these little pests coming with them. And they don't have any idea, I'm sure, or know to even look for it. Yes, definitely, because they're so small. You can't see these these things really easily on the on the firewood you're bringing in. Is it surprising that we only have one? <laughs> definitely. I, I think that's really surprising, especially when you look at states like California or some of the eastern states that have many, many forest or invasive forest pests. And I think it really has to do with the the terrain around Arizona, having to go through many deserts to get to these these areas like Phoenix. Hmm. So when you say people bring in firewood and it's like wood traveling across state lines, like is this something that is usually just individual people who are going camping or something like that? Or is it often bigger manufacturers who are, you know, having trucks of wood go across the country? I think it's oftentimes both of those those situations. Um, it's very hard to track where these insects are coming from, and we kind of just have to speculate. Hmm. And, and we assume it's coming from both of those. Is there anything being done to try to stop that from happening, at least on a commercial scale? Uh, definitely not really on a commercial scale. Um, the Department of Agriculture here in Arizona does look at firewood and regulate firewood movement. Um, and we try to put out a lot of different outreach materials to to help people realize that that moving firewood is is not so good. Hmm. Um, so the, the whole big slogan is don't move firewood or buy it where you burn it. Buy it where you burn it. Okay. Are there other invasive species that you're watching for that you're concerned about making their way into Arizona? Yes. We have four big uh, invasive forest pests that we are pretty concerned about at the moment. Um, those being the spongy moth, emerald ash borer, Asian uh, longhorn beetle, and the spotted lanternfly. So we've got several posters that that kind of explain how to keep an eye out for these pests and what to look for. Um, I'll give an example of the emerald ash borer. This is a, a very brightly colored little beetle mm-hmm. um, that attacks ash trees and olive trees, uh, which we've got a lot of those planted around the Phoenix and Tucson areas. So we're definitely concerned about it coming in. Where or, are they now? Right now they're in Colorado, in western Colorado. So they have been creeping closer and closer to the Arizona border. So it sounds like you're asking for the public's help in all of this. Definitely, yeah. We, uh, the Department of Forestry and Fire Management, along with APHIS, or the USDA, and the uh, Arizona Department of Agriculture can only do so much monitoring. We can put out traps every every now and then to look for these these pests, but we really rely on the public's help to to keep an eye out for these and and let us know if they see anything of concern. All right. That is Mitchell Lannon, Forest Health Specialist at the Arizona Department of Forestry and Fire Management, joining us to talk more about these invasive species and how they're hurting our trees. Mitchell, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you for inviting me.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. While the world has largely moved on from the COVID-19 pandemic, for our next guest, that's not possible. Michelle Dawn is a local artist who suffers from a chronic illness that lands her in the high-risk category when it comes to the coronavirus. So she still has to be careful about COVID today in, men- in ways that many of the rest of us have left behind. It is an isolating experience that led her to find a community of her own online. There, she met Katrina Dreamer, and the pair became friends. And now they have created a new zine together dedicated to the experiences of chronically ill and disabled people during the ongoing pandemic. It's called The COVID Logs, and I spoke with her more about it. So I have a genetic condition um, that makes me disabled and also chronically ill. It makes me high risk, which means if I get COVID, I'm at a higher risk of death or getting long COVID. And it also makes me immunocompromised, uh, which means that I'm more likely to catch COVID and also less likely to be able to fight it off. Hmm. So tell us a little bit about what that meant for you living through this pandemic. I mean, it was difficult for everyone, I think, in many ways, but this sounds like a whole different level for you. Absolutely. It was completely life-changing. I felt so alone the past four years and isolated. Um, I have to do a serious risk assessment anytime I literally do anything, anytime I go out into the world. Um, And it's not really because of COVID itself. It's more so because of people, um, people's Mm. unwillingness to mask, to test, to stay home when they're sick. People have just really denied the severity of COVID and its effects. What do you think it is, like if you had to pick one thing, because it sounds like there are many, right? But what do you think maybe the top thing is that people do not understand about what this has been like and what it's still like for somebody like you who has a chronic illness? Um, I, I feel like people are just sort of misled about the severity of this. Like, yes, I am drastically affected by it because I am more high risk for things like death. Um, But this affects everyone, like anyone can contract long COVID. It's been really hard for me to deal with that level of grief Mm -hmm. as far as seeing people just acting in a way where they just they truly don't understand what they're getting themselves into, how it's affecting people around them. And yeah, it's, it's just very, very isolating. So have you managed to stay away from COVID up until this point? I have. um, I have not gotten COVID yet. Um, My immediate household has not gotten COVID yet. And it's because we've drastically had to alter our lives. So you and another person have also gotten together and and created some some real art out of this, it sounds like. So I want to talk about the COVID logs, the zine that you have created. Where did this idea come from? So I am um, feeling isolated. I have been able to find a wonderful community, mostly through Instagram, of other like-minded people who practice disability justice. And it's really helped me to feel seen and less alone. And uh, one of the people that I met through that is Katrina Dreamer. They live in Colorado, and they're the co-creator of the COVID Logs. And we just had so many similar values and interests. We actually have the same chronic illness. And it was actually Katrina's idea. Um, They came up with wanting to make a zine called the COVID Logs. 
and just have it be something for the disabled and chronically ill community, um, people who feel forgotten and obsolete by this COVID experience. So this scene was just a way for us high risk people who feel disregarded um, to be like an outlet for our community, um, a place for us to connect and feel less alone. And then also just a space, hopefully a vehicle to get our voices heard. Um, it's a topic that not a lot of people are talking about. So let's talk about what this looks like. I mean, this is large. It's 98 pages. It's 36 different contributors. Tell us about what's in here. Yeah. So um, in the fall, we put out a call for artists and we got in overwhelming response. Um, mm. So many submissions. And yeah, it turned into... Basically, it went from a little zine to a 100-page book. Um, <laughs> it's uh, full color. It's a collection of different artwork and poetry, essays, just people's narratives about their experience of what life has been like since 2020. Yeah. So what are some of the ones that stand out to you? There's one I really loved in here. One artist took greeting cards, right, that she had gotten during the pandemic, even their grandmother's last letter, which was, you know, really touching and, and made artwork out of it. What 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 do you love in this? Yeah, I, I absolutely love those pieces as well. Um, Amy Pascal definitely stands out. Um, they have beautiful paintings, um, one called Still Life with COVID, one called Well-Wishers, and another called What Doesn't Kill Us, and just a beautiful representation, um, somewhat abstract of what their experience has been like. And then another one that really stands out is um, by Bug Crew. They submitted, it's a short actual graphic novel. Um, it's beautifully illustrated and there's text involved. And again, just surrounding the ideas of community care and the importance of that in a COVID world. Yeah. Tell us what you contributed to this as well, because you're also an artist and, and do your own kind of work, right? I am. Yeah. So I often do emulsion lifts, which is a manipulation technique with Polaroid photos. And I worked on a series back in 2020. Um, when this all started, I kind of used art as an outlet. And I created a series of three photos called Unseen, Unheard. And it's uh, emulsion lifts and also double exposure of myself. And I'm kind of blurred. And there's a overlaying layer of floral and different plant life over mm -hmm. the top of me. So you can't fully see the image of myself. Um, and it's just sort of was made to represent that feeling of being unheard and feeling obsolete. And also, again, just like the zine, a way to kind of connect with other people in my community and help people to feel less alone and let them know that, hey, you know, I'm experiencing something similar to you. Yeah. What does it mean to you to have done this and to be able to let other people who have been through similar experiences also be able to tell their stories? It's just, it's been so important to me. Obviously, this affects me personally so much. Um, but it's also important to me because just the idea of community care is something that's extremely important to me. The idea of wearing a mask to not just protect yourself, but to protect your community and strangers and just everyone that you come in contact with. Also, COVID 
disproportionately affects Black and Indigenous communities and other people of color. So wearing a mask is not only care, but it's also just a sign of solidarity. And all of those things are so important to me. And our zine really helps get that out into the world. Um, so many people have just stopped talking about COVID. They think it doesn't exist anymore or it's not dangerous. And it's just not accurate. Like those aren't the scientific facts. And so it's just so important to me to get this out into the world and to help other people who are in my position to not feel alone and also just to put it out in the world as an act of community care. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there for now. Michelle Don, local artist and co-creator of the COVID Logs zine joining us. Michelle, thank you so much for telling us your story. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.